Hello, Rejects. I'm... <laughs> I was going to say I'm Dave. No, I'm Brent. And I'm Dave. Welcome back to Rejected Central, a podcast that seeks, among other things, to elevate the rejection experience. I'm going to make a radical statement, Dave. Go for it, Brent. It's nice to walk places. What? Why is it radical? Well, it's not in most of the world, but here in Canada and the USA, walking places, aside from walking the dog or around the block, isn't the norm because we've created entire cities and towns around cars. And created them to move people in cars out to the suburbs and through city cores as quickly as possible. We need to bring people back into our towns and cities and our neighborhoods and help them live better lives right where they are. How's that for a radical statement? On this episode of Rejected Central, we're going to talk about rejecting bad urban design. From streets to population density to zoning and a few other things as well, it's a really big conversation. When we talk about the debate around increasing population density, for example, we tend to think polar opposites when we think of the scale of it. We talk about standalone suburban single-family homes as the enemy of density and mid- and high-rise buildings as the solution. But the conversation is much bigger than that. Our guest today is John Vrates, who works as an engineer designing and managing municipal infrastructure, which he's done in the public and private sector for many, 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 many years. But I've noticed on a number of occasions that he has a real passion, not only for how cities are built, like he deals with in his day job, but why they're built that way. I'll say here as a loose disclaimer that John is here as a citizen, a caring citizen, not as a representative for anyone or any organization. John, welcome to Rejected Central. Thank you. And thanks for the disclaimer. I appreciate it. Oh, not at all. Not at all. You know, we, we got to cover our yeah. behinds. Yeah. Oh, well, I always do too. C-Y-A. Cover our, you know. <laughs> behinds. There's a silent A. We've been asking our guests to start with, uh, a sh- uh, to share a personal rejection story. Some have taken us up on it. Some have not. John has agreed, and he teased me a little bit with, tell us, and so we're going to get him to tell us about his first time failing. Sure. So um, as, a, as a kid, I grew up in, in a home where school was very important and doing well in school was very important. And, and it was never really an issue. I always did okay. I got okay grades. I moved along. I was able to, without too much effort, be able to find my way through school and, and, and landed myself in an engineering program, which I was very excited about. But uh, there, there's always the warning in engineering that, that it has a high failure rate and expect low marks and it's going to be really difficult. And I remember walking into my first year of school and everything was going pretty smoothly at first. And, and looking back and I realize now a lot of it was because we, I must have had fairly advanced or very, very good high school teachers who were getting into a lot of the material and over, we had some overlap. And so by the end of the first year, I was definitely not doing as well, but I did all right. I passed my first year and, and I have a family member who I'm following the footsteps of who had failed their first year and, and ended up doing wonderfully and carrying on with their career in engineering eventually. But uh, I, I think I followed them just a little late. And it was my second year that it finally caught up with me. I, I'd never really, I never really learned to, to put my nose in the books and study and really, really concentrate all my effort on it's school. A, it's a different kind of level of paying attention, isn't it? It, it really is. Yeah. And, and I'd managed to get just good enough grades to do whatever I wanted to do my entire life till that point. 
And so at the end of my second year, I was faced with a failing grade in a couple of my courses. And it was enough where uh, my I was actually removed from the engineering school. Uh, wow. Uh, and so I had to apply through a process called... Um, well, now I'm going to blank on the name of it, but a uh, reinstatement. I, I had to apply to be reinstated and meet with various professors at the school, as well as the head of the engineering faculty, um, and, and discuss all this. Um, if you had and, had that, hap- sorry, scared, if you had had that yeah. happen in the first year, did, would you have had to go through the same thing, or yeah. are they a yeah. little more lenient in no. the first year, and then the second year they're like, now you're if, serious? If you fail a certain number of your total credits, you're in trouble. And and what really got me in the end was I won. There used to be one full year math course that had enough credits on its own right. that that if you if you drop the ball in that course alone, your entire year was gone. All right. Um, so yeah, I, I had to learn from that, how to study, how how to take this stuff a lot more seriously, and, and how to really put aside a lot of my other interests that I'd and, always... And how to eat humble pie with those oh, professors yeah. that you had to ask for reinstatement. Oh, oh definitely. Uh, I, had, I had one professor who, who strongly tried to convince me to pursue other options during the meeting with him. Uh, I, I will say, though, he was one of the proudest to see me in his fourth-year class uh, when I got there and doing okay by that point. I was never a straight A student, but a solid student after that. Uh, I, I put, a, I put aside a lot of my extracurriculars and, and really tried to focus. But confronted for the first time in a, in a fairly stable academic life with the idea of not being able to yeah, do I, what you were hoping to do. At first I had no idea what to do. I, I, it's not something I'd ever faced. I, you just had to do the steps and get through things was, was my mentality leading up to that point. And that really changed. And it was a good wake up call in retrospect because it gave me a sense that like, no, that there are real consequences if you don't take things seriously. Well, and all those professors now call you for advice daily, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we quite got there, but, uh, but yeah. I mentioned a few moments ago, your passion for urban design, mm-hmm. um, which I'm, I'm kind of giving it that name. We didn't really give it a label. I, driving, I think Yeah. Is it? Okay, yeah. good. Driving to and from Forge games, by the way, go Forge. Woo. <laughs> we both live in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, which like many North American cities, uh, converted many of its streets to one way yeah. back in the 1950s. That's right. In the interests of increasing car flow. And and making it easier to get through town rather yeah. than stay in town uh, in your car. How do you feel when you hear the street names King and Main? King and Main, I just mean, for our listeners, yeah. they are two arteries going east and west through the downtown. Until very recently, they had synchronized stoplights so you could never stop, never hit your brake pedal. It was really like the two yeah. directions of traffic on a freeway cutting through the center of the city with one block separating them. Uh, the speed limits are around 60 kilometers per hour, yeah. 50 kilometers per hour yeah. on most of it, but realistically, 70 or 80 was not uncommon. Um, I, I have very strong feelings about those streets, uh, and, and they're interesting because of the history that went into them being formed the way they are, but but at the same time, they're not inviting places. They're not places you want to go, and they're, they're not places where businesses thrive, and they're not places... You know, for a downtown to have these grandiose buildings for kilometers along these stretches of roads, and they're all in disrepair and dilapidated and empty. Because that, people didn't stop, right? Because the, people don't The whole stop. idea that what you want to do is make sure people in their cars yeah. can get to where they want to go. Exactly. And not have them stay. But it also has a lot to do with 
um, other forms of transportation in the city, everything from public transit all the way down to pedestrian traffic and actual yeah. walking, right? And, and so we're going to talk a lot about how the design of a city centers on, uh, it, it is a contrast, and there's a lot of discussion nowadays between vehicular traffic and pedestrian traffic. But okay, I'm going to put you on the spot one more time. Sure. Uh, the war on cars. Oh, I love the phrase. I was just thinking about that. So I, biking home from work today because I, I bike to work. I should point out I own a car. Yeah. I have a driver's license with a great record. I use that car mm-hmm. uh, somewhat regularly, but I just don't commute. It, it's uh, There's a whole story behind that, but may, maybe another time. Um <laughs> We're going to have you back so, to talk about sure, nimbyism. I've, sure. I've decided to kind of separate. <laughs> we, we, we sort of spitballed it the other day but, through your car window. Yeah. But we're going to do that another yeah. day. But the war on the car, war on the car. Um, just today, riding home, there's one small stretch of road that I have to ride along that has a bike lane at the side of it. Uh, and, and because of the configuration of the road, cars in, in within the next block, it splits into two lanes. The bike lane disappears and the bike lane turns side, turns right onto a minor side street. Uh, and because of that configuration, people in cars to tend to start moving into the two-lane configuration a block or so early, completely blocking the bike lane. They ignore its existence entirely. And, and today, there was enough, I was riding along that section, there was just enough room to kind of like put one foot down on the curb and just scoot by because I didn't want to wait multiple traffic lights for this traffic to move just to be able to make my turn and carry on my way home. Uh, and I had someone honk at me because I got close to their vehicle. And, and yell at me and uh, rolling away from that because I carried on my way uh, I was really thinking about the fact that there was that entitlement to that one tiny iota of space and I, I think Hamilton has like the second or at least used to have the second most lane kilometers of road per capita of any city in the country hmm. so the idea that that there was that that entitlement to that one small bit of space within the right-of-way that wasn't for them and that they were insulted and or angry that someone was using that and and almost you know scratched their car from their perspective mm. um, i mean aside from the legislative reality that in fact drivers have to keep that buffer between yeah. them and cyclists as yeah well, he, he too right th- like, this driver had had taken their car and crossed a solid line okay. illegally absolutely in this case without a doubt but but it, that's that's why the war on cars always the, the phrase the war on cars always makes me chuckle because it's it's the idea that and and I know because I drive it's the idea that that everyone's against the car when when in reality when I get my car and drive around anywhere in the city in the country on highways you know people look out for each other some there are bad drivers there are good drivers but like there's an arrow I belong I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing everything's okay and every whether or not you realize it the whole system of infrastructure around you is built for you in your car when when i get on a bike it's it is just constant reminders that you don't matter you are insignificant and you are expendable and and whether, whether it be the experience of actually riding a bicycle through the city and it's true for pedestrians it's true for transit in most north american cities people with mobility challenges absolutely and- um uh, but you don't matter and you see it, you see it when you're participating in those activities or ways of getting around and you see it in the way news covers, uh, incidents between, v- uh, automobiles and other forms of transportation and the way those are reported. Like it, it's very, very ingrained in our culture. Yeah. I, I think we're going to do something a little bit radical, but you know, I, 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 that phrase comes up, but I think 
the radical part of what we're going to do today, John, is we're going to look for nuance. Sure. As a driver. Uh, which I love. You are a car driver. I'm a car driver. I also bike. You bike. We try to mix it up. We're not going to focus on the move entirely away from cars. We can't do that. Again, like I mentioned in the introduction, that polarizing conversation, such as a phrase, war on cars, war on pedestrians, say we go with the opposite side. We're going to just go right through the middle and we're going to try to find something, a nuanced middle. One of the phrases that came up when you, John sent me a few seed things to look up for today's, um, for today's episode and a really neat one that I liked and it kind of sent me down a, a rather large internet rabbit hole, but the phrase human scale. Yeah. And it, it's, it's very holistic. It's not just one thing. Tell me about that phrase when it comes to our cities and not just Hamilton where we're from, but yep. I think it extends to a lot of places that are sort of rediscovering their urban identity. Sure. So, so the idea of anything being human scale, um, is the idea that it feels natural, that our surroundings feel natural compared to us. Uh, like, like you would walking in a forest or, or somewhere in nature. Um, if you want a real world example, imagine having either being in an older downtown like like a downtown Hamilton on those old narrow streets or if you've traveled somewhere somewhere that people love to travel like Paris or or Barcelona or any of New York City yeah, yeah I was those... just gonna say Manhattan that yeah. human scale I mean, also the idea of, of a five minute walkability yeah. where you yeah. can get basically what you need you know you don't need an Ikea in your block but, right but you know you can get your groceries you can get your drugs you can get your bagel you can yeah or, or and that whole concept now the the popular term for that is the fifteen minute city, which I know is another one of those terms that seems to be weaponized all of a sudden. But really, that's all it means is providing an option within cities. Well, and I saw five minute city too. Sure, yeah, yeah I, I used to live. I'd in, weaponize in that, that I think because that's that's pretty, quite incredible. Because even yeah. we live, uh, we we don't live in the core. We live in the the, the middle of the middle ish of the city. Yeah, we can't walk somewhere in five minutes and get anything unless we're really walking. No, fast. in fact, but fifteen minutes. Yep. We're basically where whatever we need again. With yeah, with a, with the exception of furniture, maybe. But yeah, and the big thing with that is it's not for everyone, and it doesn't have to be for everyone. I, I think that's part of what what scares a lot of people is this idea that we're going to make all cities places where everything is set up so you can get anywhere in fifteen minutes. And a lot of people say, "Well, I don't, I don't want to change the way I live," and that's fine. People can live in suburbs. People can live in rural environments. I get living in rural environments. Like that that has a lot of appeal to me. Um, but I, I think of it almost like, like marketing. Uh, we're really good at providing goods and services in the form of housing to the market that wants suburban living. We're really good at uh, providing that to rural living. We're really good at providing high-rise I was going to say living. condos. For, for people that yeah. want to live alone or, or people, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of cases, maybe they're just using it as investment. But but a lot of those are very, all of those examples, except maybe rural living, are very uh, monogamous in the type of, or homogeneous, I guess, is the word I'm looking for, in the in the the type of lifestyle you can have in that. You know, all those high rises you see in large cities, like Toronto is a local example. A lot of them are one bedroom, maybe some two bedroom. But a lot of them are just one bedroom. And they're not the type of place where, where you live in a neighborhood when you're young in something like that. And you stay there when you meet, meet a life partner, when, when maybe you decide to have a family. All of those things require movement within that type of built form. So, well, I, I, and I think that's a really good place to introduce one of the other seed phrases that you gave to me talking about the missing middle. 
mm-hmm. where, you know, we have, we're talking about condos now, that fact that they advertise or they do a really good job of advertising condos when it comes to single home families out in the suburbs, you see the billboards, you see all of that. And of course there's the bucolic Facebook conversations about those we know who have moved to the country to find their rural roots, sure. you know, but the missing middle addresses a lot of that by filling something that we don't often think about. Tell me a little bit about that missing middle sure. and how so, it addresses so the, what we've been talking the, about. The missing middle is a term used to describe uh, primarily in North America a, a type of built residential form that we just don't do. And that is something, if, if you've traveled within North America to somewhere like Montreal and some of the older neighborhoods, or if you've traveled to different parts of Europe and, and throughout Asia, you see much more often, which is halfway between a low to mid-rise apartment building and townhouses. A little more density than townhouses, but still having that ability to have a home that that can meet the needs of of different types of population, older couples, young couples starting out, families, single people. Um, But they still have, you know, some of those features that people really like about suburbs. So, so, built form with with a few units within within a reasonable amount of area but there might be a courtyard or shared like a private space or a, sure. a courtyard living and, and making them the actually livable for those different types of family shapes and sizes instead of just assuming that as soon as you have kids you're going to move mm-hmm. um and we don't build a lot in that of that in this country we do see I, I like you mentioning that when you walk around in places like we go to europe or we go to yeah. like manhattan or whatever or new york even here in our own neighborhood, you can see remnants of a little bit of that. Like you'll walk by a row of, it'll be a single building, there'll be shops on the bottom, and there's an apartment right above that yeah. connects to that shop, right? Yeah. Because that working where you live part of that middle too is, it has happened. Yeah. But it seems like it's fragmented now. We, especially here in North America, you don't see it as intensely as you might in when you're in the courtyards of... The big, Barcelona the biggest change is the like car. That. The car changed everything when it came to how we plan and design neighborhoods, or, or if you go back far enough, not even really plan or design neighborhoods. It was just uh, necessity. You know, those old neighborhoods in Montreal I mentioned, the Plateau area or something like that. Um, some of them predate common car ownership. There isn't the same level of parking, but but what you have is, is housing where you can kind of get a lot of the feel that we get from a modern suburb that we want, you know, that individual space with a little bit of your own green space, but you're still able to walk everywhere because that's how you get around before the car exists in a city, right? Maybe maybe you had horses or, or some right. sort of carriage service that's you could right. rent, but yeah. generally speaking... Train, you know, yeah, some, but bicycles, some cases, bicycles. I mean, bicycles predate the car by, by a few decades. Um, but yeah, you, you walk. So you needed to be able to get to around in a city environment... And so that, that was the compromise to get, to get that suburban feel that, or that, that why I think people think, hope they're getting in a suburban environment, but without a car. Yeah. Another concept that came up when I was looking at this was the idea of the third space where traditionally there's three spaces or there's two spaces, home is the first space. Your workplace is the second space. Historically, I think places of faith, uh, places of worship occupied a third, mm-hmm. but of course that's disappearing nowadays. And so the discussion about reestablishing good places to live with housing, workplace, like we talked about a few minutes ago, 
reestablishing third. Uh, well, I want to make sure I get this correct. Oh, please. This third is new places. to me or, yeah, or no, a new concept for me. Actually, I, and it's, like it's it. kind of interesting. When I, I worked for the, the Hamilton Public Library for a, for a decade, and when I started back in 2011, the, we had a new head librarian come in. And I was, I was new, but he was using language like, uh, we need to see libraries as more than just a place people go to get books, read books, leave with books. For obvious reasons, the Amazons of the world have decreased the demand for books and specifically, sure. but even things like media and that kind of thing, they were, we have to see it as, and I don't remember whether he called it a third space or a fourth space, but it was that idea of when we think about where we put our resources, we should be thinking about how they fit into that structure, whether it's housing, whether it's traffic, whether it's um, bike lanes, protected bike lanes, whether it's uh, 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 you know, setting up a shop when, you know what, why don't we build an apartment above it? We have to think about how what we're building fits into those places where people will be, right? I mean, yes, you can, you can play with it and you can say, well, there's more than just three spaces or four spaces, right? Sure. But this is a historical designation to prioritize what walkable, livable urban environments and, and environments in general they meet those needs by providing those spaces. And I think it's it's kind of a nice holistic, again, way of way of thinking about wanting to be in a place. Yeah. And exist in a place, not yeah. just live, right? I mean, yeah. it's existing. Yeah. Kind of, um, I guess, another way of looking at it, those social, those points of social connection in your community. And that that's one of the things that always worries me or, or, or leaves me wondering because I, I, I grew up in a suburb, but I grew up in a suburb in a small town where, you know, a, a walk to school meant you crossed through the downtown. So so really, we kind of had that built into our community. But but I wonder about the suburbs that I see in a place like, well, in any modern North American city. And I wonder what this, those third places are. I mean, Tim Hortons. Yeah. Starbucks, right? Yeah. Like it, if, it, if you're, if you're yeah, a, you a retirement age, especially, I, I think I, I've personally seen a, lo a lot of cases where, where people from that, from that neighborhood, they get together and have their daily coffee together mid morning. Um, it doesn't always work if you have a work schedule, but the fourth space as the big box stores, then the power centers that make them up <laughs> they're yeah. really their own animal, aren't they? And of course you have to drive there. Yeah. And if you want to walk from one end of those power centers where you find your big box stores, try walking, right? Yeah. You Sometimes you don't even have a sidewalk built because they weren't required to. And right. you have to cross parking lot after parking lot. After parking and lot. and every every sidewalk that you install is space you're taking away from your parking requirements. Parking requirements. So, which are often mandatory parking requirements, um, which is a whole other interesting world <laughs> it is I, going back to the suburbs for a minute and i don't know if this is kind of what you mentioned when you mentioned designing neighborhoods for designers but when you talk yes. about the prototypical uh 1970s 80s 90s suburb i'm going to use the master planned community mm -hmm. which you see on the advertising it's kind of like what we talked about earlier it's a master planned community which just basically means they're not in grids Right. They're made with cul-de-sacs and, and that kind of thing. Is that, a, is that a kind of example of designing for the designer? Like the designer kind of said, we want to make sure we just have our own neighbors in here. And that's... Um, designing for the designer goes beyond that. So those designs are done because, 
you because of a lot of nimbyism. You know, people people want to live in a community and they don't want other people driving down their street and they don't want other people cutting through. So you get rid of the grid, you create dead ends. Only the people on my street drive down my street. So that's more to meet a perceived need of those who are living in that particular community exactly. rather than from the designer. Okay. So what exactly. is designer designing for designers? So so this is much more this is when I looked up um Dr. Google wanted yeah. to give me a designer for my home or, you know what I mean? I just, (laughs) it was all ads. So I couldn't find much. So I'm really curious. So this, this was my one thought where I can really tie my, my career in engineering more into this urban planning interest that that I've developed over the years, which is, um, we, we have kind of in every, in every community where we have road design standards, uh, those standards are prescribed by the, the governing body and they're usually developers, actually developers typically own a big block of land. They develop it and they subdivide it into all the properties and they build the roads and they give the roads to the city as part of the agreement in exchange for permission to build all the, the subdivision and, and make, sell all the properties. And those roads are built to city standards because they will become municipal assets or whatever the, the governing body is. Um, and so... Those roads are very, the, the, the design standards for those roads are prescribed to a high degree based on the engineering needs to make that road work easily. Um, so you have things like making sure that the different subsurface infrastructure, the water, sewer, and utilities, and gas lines are all evenly spaced and nicely spaced out so that in future they can be daylighted, excavated, and, and worked on easily without a high risk of getting in, getting in the way of another utility or damaging another piece of infrastructure or even making room to uh, install something different in the future that we don't anticipate yet. If, uh, say, stormwater and storm patterns change, you need larger storm sewers or extra trunk lines that run through the neighborhood. So a lot of the width of a city right-of-way is is prescribed by that, uh, as well as on the surface. We have you know things that you definitely want to have in your right-of-way within a lot of neighborhoods, which is a sidewalk on each side, curves, maybe a bit of a boulevard. But even that is questionable and then the road right-of-way itself which in most north american municipalities for a modern residential road you could have 10 lots on a cul-de-sac so literally 10 10 cars or 20 cars if both parents in a typical family have are driving in and out every day you've got 20 cars driving in and out every day you still have to have enough width in that road in most jurisdictions for parked cars on at least one side and for two full-size fire trucks to pass each other at full speed. Whoa. And North American fire trucks. If, if we have any listeners here and that's from, for from, new from Europe, they're right? narrower. Like, so all new development roads okay, okay. in most North American municipalities. I can hear people from places that aren't North America going, yeah. how can you possibly? But of course, yeah. that we are, we're used to spreading out a little more. Right. Yeah. And, and so by the time it's all said and done, a typical suburban cross-section a right-of-way from property from the front property line of one house to the property line of the house across the street could be 20 meters wide uh or more and and there's a real question of is that actually make a neighborhood that's good for people to live in and i don't know if that question gets asked nearly enough because all the decision making is being driven on these needs to meet certain servicing standards. And that's where the design comes in? Yeah. Right. Okay. And the designer's meeting those 
on paper need, not looking up from the design right. and looking well, at the and, neighborhood? And, Is that in fairness, they're they're being told what the design needs to be by by municipalities or well, governing and to a certain bodies. Extent, this has to be a good thing yeah. too, but you know, you're um, talking about there's limitations order, with the just the yeah. discussion process. And so I, I always like to use examples in our own neighborhood here. Uh, we, we live in an older neighborhood developed in the 30s and 40s. And we have two streets that run parallel to each other. For, for anyone that knows Hamilton, it's Longwood and Bond Street. Um, Bond is kind of the more minor road. They both have the same origin uh, at a major thoroughfare and kind of taper off at the end of the neighborhood parallel to each other. And one of them is a bit narrower. And until the last couple of years had parking allowed on both sides right. of the street, still has, has parking changing. on one side yeah. of the street. And it, it's, it's a bit of a narrow road. And if you cross another car driving up and down that street, you really slow down or some people will wait in little pockets between parked cars and let the other person by and everything's just slow. There's a 40 kilometer per hour limit. I doubt most people drive 40 kilometers per hour on that road. One block away, we have Longwood, which is wider. Uh, it has a bus route, so it has to be maintained at a certain width of free movement in the one direction. Uh, a little less tree growth along it as well, which makes it, it gives it a sense of wideness. And all of a sudden on that street, we have to install speed bumps. We have uh, one of those signs that lights up to tell you how fast you're going with a little <laughs> radar so you can see how much over the speed limit you're going because right. people honestly right. don't realize they're driving over the speed limit. And that comes down to the fact that a lot of what controls how people, how fast people will go is design of a road, not speed limits, not enforcement. Those, those two things have very limited effectiveness. Design governs how fast people will drive. Yeah, and you, you and I have talked about that as well because sure. I come from it from the other side of it. I look at people speeding up Bond Street here where there's a school and I want a police officer there once a week. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're, we've, we've talked about it. You're like, but that can't be the entire conversation. It's not just about enforcement. It's this design question. Okay. So designing d design neighborhoods for designers that mm -hmm. you mentioned, um, if like put that in a sentence or two is, I mean, are you saying that, that the principle is a good thing or is it, no. is it that thing that Sorry, I was saying just, where you're looking down at the design yeah. and you're not actually looking at Longwood over here and saying, well, actually it's, you know. Yeah. I, I, I worry that the questions don't get asked enough are, does that design work for the people that will live there? Um, do you want to live in a neighborhood with no trees and and a huge distance between you and the house across the street and it doesn't it, it goes outside that human scale right that, that okay. term we talked about earlier right, right, like right. there is kind of a, a a proportional scale of a street that if you're standing in the middle of the road looking down in one direction if the buildings are a certain distance apart and everything is a certain way it just feels right and and you know you see artwork and photographs based on on those proportions or you go to uh, as a tourist you go visit places that have proportions more like that but we don't build it we build this this road cross-section between people's homes or between businesses or between other buildings that are designed entirely for functional and servicing needs and in often cases it goes i think too far uh, in terms of uh, over-design. Hmm. And, and also maybe sometimes someone needs to ask the question, 
sure, maybe spacing, I'm thinking subsurface infrastructure, sure, maybe spacing out all our sewers and infrastructure underground makes it a little easier once every 30 or 40 years to get down there and fix things that we need to, maybe even longer, honestly, uh, in my experience. Um, but how much does that cost us in terms of lost land that we've sacrificed to, from, from potential other uses? Uh, further sprawl because you know if if you design an entire neighborhood like that you've essentially made houses further from the destination the other end of that neighborhood that someone might want to get to and as they're crossing along they're not crossing other houses they're crossing other streets you're stretching out entire neighborhoods to accommodate those those 20, 18 or 20 meter cross sections of roads mm-hmm. um, so so the questions I think that we need to ask more what makes a space that feels good to live in? What's the value of making a space that feels good to live in beyond beyond the private property component, of course? Um, it's interesting to talk a little a few minutes ago too about people passing on a narrow street mm-hmm. that it because we're so used to a certain scale and by design, it becomes intimidating to pass people going the other way if there's a row of cars parked on one side. Yes. Right? Even though there's more than enough room. Way more than enough room. And I, yeah. I, I, I get a good chuckle at just how cautious people can be having lived in Asia, for example, or lived yes. in, in places where you just don't have that kind of room. And you just get used to being close. Like we lived in, my wife and I lived in Seoul, Korea, and roadways there are just built to just what you need to drive a car Yes. Or a bus through. Yeah. And often that's the same distance. And so you just get really used to driving close to everything. Europe's the same way. You know, you have and, those little country roads in Asia. And in those example. examples, both both in most of Asia and throughout Europe, one of the big things you'll notice, I, I mentioned fire trucks earlier, their fire trucks are narrower. Well, the, everything is... And yes, so it always, blow, trucks it always blows yeah. my mind, mm-hmm. the... the funding logic that comes down to, well, we need fire trucks and ambulances to be able to get past each other if there's an emergency on every single street. And when you ask the question, why don't we just buy these European style fire trucks that are, you know, a couple feet narrower and otherwise work just as well? Well, they're slightly more expensive. But then how much are we spending on just asphalt alone? Mm Mm-hmm across oh, a typical wow. municipality yeah. the things we don't when, think about when, at all when, when you start along. really doing yeah. the math you do and, though and the accounting on it which is, which is something that we're not very good at in, in in my profession we don't always think about the accounting side of it we think about the design side what do we want to build how do we keep it cheap within our constraints and, and our volume controls? and the numbers right not and, and those other costs those are externalities we're not we're not thinking about well if we spend 30 grand more per fire truck in our community we can save much more on the cost of materials and, and the cost of land for for our roadways and right-of-ways. So Not to mention it's likely to have a smaller engine yeah. that does the job in Europe yeah. and could save a number of other things too, part of that bigger conversation as well. And there are cities, parts of cities, I, I've seen them myself in Quebec City as an example, uh, where, where they do use European-style trucks and they've imported yeah. some and they work great. Yeah, yeah, it's that mentality of, well, it won't work for us because right. we're us, yeah. you know. Um, I'm going to go to Longwood again. Uh, okay. Another phrase that you mentioned with zoning and you you compared it to doing SimCity in the 1990s. So <laughs> if we look at Longwood and when you talk about zoning, am I reading that you mean 
designated for certain purposes. That's right. Parts of cities designated for certain purposes. So I look at Longwood, for example, it starts here with us, which is residential, goes past uh, King Street, and it has residential on one side, residential, and then academic, I guess, the school. Sure. Yeah. And then across there, you've got some retail uh, when you're just across Main Street, and then it goes industrial. Now, yeah. those are, are those the zones that you're referring those, to? Those are the big ones. Yeah. Okay. In, in, industrial, commercial, uh, residential, institutional. Yeah. I know. Are, okay. Are so it makes a sense. It makes a certain kind of sense to me as a layperson to make sure that things are designated a certain way. I don't want my next door neighbor with cattle in his of backyard uh, yeah. anymore. Uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to be right next to the smokestack from a factory processing something that's going to stink or potentially cause health concerns. Sure. For, and for... from the authorities' perspective, they don't want to have to provide residential level infrastructure and services to a single home in the middle of an industrial section. Yeah. So okay. So we're talking about the same thing. So, um, what what are you seeing with the zoning in the city? So m- modern suburbs. In North America, uh, one of the, one of the biggest things I always think about, and it comes back to that fifteen minute city idea, is you're not allowed to build a corner store in the middle of a m- modern suburb. You're not allowed to build a little corner cafe. There's n- you can't build I, that third space idea that you mentioned. You oh, can't, that's true. You cannot yeah, yeah, build, yeah. or you cannot open a, a neighborhood pub or a neighborhood cafe or a neighborhood corner store. Nice callback, by the way. Thank, thank you, you for. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like that term. I'm yeah. going to use that from now on. But because uh, uh, wouldn't I'm it be a, great to have those things? Yeah, though, I've sometimes. always thought in our own neighborhood, wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to walk almost a kilometer to get a coffee? Wouldn't it be great if if us on a Saturday morning we just all get together, grab an espresso together, and then go about our day doing whatever we need to do? And you pop in, you see your neighbors, you chat, you're on your way. Hmm. Um, there's a real value to that, exactly like you had mentioned. And and in most jurisdictions, you cannot build that. It's illegal. In essence, there are bylaws that prevent you from doing so because the lands in most modern suburban neighborhoods are for pure residential use and in most cases, pure single-family residential use. Uh, there is there is a little bit of a budding trend, more so in the United States, I'm noticing, than Canada, that that some municipalities are starting to look at single family housing only zoning and saying, this is not sustainable. It's worked so far because we've had the land, cars are relatively new invention. They've only been around for a couple generations, but now we're starting to get to the point where we're getting like California, where we're the, you can't fix the traffic anymore. You can't keep spreading out. We need to really look at, how cities grew before cars and cities, how cities grew very organically starting as small towns. And then the original small town buildings might be expanded or converted or replaced with larger buildings as the small buildings, new small buildings grow out. And you have a city that very organically grows up and out. Whereas, and some municipalities are figuring that out. They're now starting you, to say you, single family zoning is dead. And by right, maybe you can replace houses within an existing suburban neighborhood with something a little bit more dense, one step more dense. Now, um, do you do you replace the zoning, or do you just, I guess, as things evolve, modify? Like, what's the better way? Do we rethink the whole zoning thing entirely? Do we? I mean, it's not possible to sort of get rid. Like our houses here no, are, you know, they're 90 they're too, years old, and 
there are two parts of the zoning. I mean, I'm not saying get rid of zoning and allow industrial use next door. Because that would be the argument. We could, right. Because the industrial, yeah. if you can build a cafe in your front yard, why can't I build a sure. small but, factory? But in... we can still be much more lenient about the allowable uses yeah. by right on a piece of property, which means you don't have to get special applications or exceptions from the municipality that might not go through to build something there. Um, you know, you could say residential or certain types of small commercial use to a maximum occupancy or maximum size of this or that or whatever it is, or, or by right, you can build, uh, slightly more dense styles of housing on the existing properties. So, so that, that's an idea I've read about by, uh, uh, an American, uh, I think he's a planner, but don't quote me on it. Um, uh, I won't promise. Uh, Joe Minicosi, who who does a lot of interesting research on this stuff. And, and one of the ideas he has and that he promotes is that when a new neighborhood is built and it is zoned, say, let's use a single family home as an example, a single family home neighborhood, it's all single family homes. But the day that that neighborhood is done by right, every single property in that could be developed by the owner or redeveloped by the owner into one step more dense. So maybe if you own a single house there, you get in to the point where the demand has gone up, the house is starting to age. You could, as an option, tear down that house and turn it into a uh, two semi-detached houses mm. on the same piece of property. Right. So, so it's still kind of working limiting, within limiting the, the, yeah. the, ex, yep. the extreme rate of growth you're not going to tear it down and put a high rise there mm -hmm. but you're kind of allowing that old-fashioned organic growth of cities that was very common throughout human history until outside north america especially until the last you know 100 years or 70 years you mentioned uh the the traffic going coming into a city as well and i think that does tie into that other thing you seeded for me called induced demand for roads and highways, yeah, um, building cities for cars coming in. Now, in economics, induced demand is where an increase in supply results in a decline in price and an increase in consumption. Right. But for traffic, it applies to, is it as simple as just saying more cars, therefore build more roads, more lanes on the highways, more highways is that the approach that we that, that that's the common approach is, right. is there's the perception and even within my profession there is a common perception that if the highways at capacity add another lane it will fix it um but but the reality is we have uh, the first studies done on this were done in the united states in the 1930s and and studies throughout north america uh and around the world have reinforced or, or, or found the same outcome every single time which is when you build new capacity, road capacity, within a system that's already highly demand uh, at a high demand level, uh, what you end up doing is creating new trips on those roads. Uh, either people rerouting to use that. Say, imagine an example of an expanded highway. It, went, it was two lanes in each direction. We've made it three lanes in each direction. The number of additional trips that people will take on that highway negates any you know, commuting time gains that you're going to see. You end up seeing traffic speeds during peak usages that are as slow or slower than they were before. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think this is actually one of the few times you're going to hear me recommend Wikipedia. Because, oh, yeah. Because the, this honestly, page, yes. when I looked at the induction, um, induct, induced demand, sorry, that page was fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, and it describes in a 
quite a bit more detail. Uh, like you're talking about, it uses all the terminology, but it doesn't get too far into the jargon that it's not understandable. So, oh, I, 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 I my skin's crawling a little bit. Whoever wrote Wikipedia that Wikipedia is good on this one. page nailed it. I, I, I got it. Say. Like I they, got they it when really, I was reading really nailed it. it. I was yeah. I, the first time I read that, I was very impressed with how well they'd really hit on it and, and concisely so. Like Wikipedia is amazing. Don't get yeah. me wrong. And it's so much better than it was when it first came out and scared the, you know what, out of every teacher in the world. Sure. That's when I <laughs> first was exposed to it. Like, oh my goodness, no, anybody can change it. Ah, No, no, it's not that anymore. But it was actually great to read uh, just uh, summaries of those case studies yeah. about, about the fact that yes, if we could just say for the commuting hour, there was one more lane for just the commuting cars who are doing those just those trips, okay, you could do more volume. But then there's the perception of, well, it's bigger. I can go more. It connects more. It goes yeah. to different places. That Yeah, that really... And, and, the, and the one other factor that, that isn't necessarily induced demand, you're not creating new trips, but the other factor that people forget about is that if the choke point right now is the stretch of highway from point A to point B, and you expand the highway from point A to point B, you might have just moved the choke point to the exit at the at point C that was just barely able to process the traffic before, but now has become the critical point, and you end up seeing traffic caused by that that's exactly the same. So, uh, I mean, the evidence suggests that the real solution to to just add a little more capacity to your system is some sort sort of mass transit system that that's what tends to work out best in those situations. That yeah, I was going to ask real you results. what um, what would be some very practical, proven things that you can do in a city um, to help alleviate that. Yeah, right. I mean, I think there's a lot of cities that are like our city. They're re-examining what cars should do and what we would like drivers to think about and how to move around our city when they come off of the 403 or the QEW, um, the Nikola Tesla boulevards of the city, sure. right? Like that kind of, those cars have to go somewhere. What do we do with that? So you've mentioned mass transit. Yeah. Okay. And mass transit doesn't always. That, that's the tricky thing in North America, especially with mass transit, is I can run... I can mass, I can run mass transit in certain parts of cities across this country and across the United States and, and, and make a huge difference. But I can't in a low density, modern, single family home only suburb, there just isn't the density to provide efficient mass transit. Um, even even if everyone wanted to use it, it's just so spread out that it's a slow, arduous, painful trip. It's extremely difficult to do. It never makes money. I mean, tr public transit shouldn't make money, but but like, well, that's fair. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it is very, very difficult to make an effective mass transit system at any price point for single-family home, large suburban communities. Is it enough to say that any solution would basically get people thinking about just moving less? Is that enough? Is that fair? Like meeting transportation needs. Well, what if we did the missing middle more where right. you've got, you've got a, a fourplex, for example, and on the bottom floor, you've got shops. Yeah. Right. Or you've got more reasons not to go places. Is that enough? Like, it, it makes a huge difference. Um, if, if your commute is smaller or, or 
uh, I, I had this formative experience that really drove a lot of my passion for this when I was 16 and I had the, the opportunity to, to travel bits of Europe uh, as part of a group. And I stayed in a neighborhood as a billeter with, uh, with a tram line, that, this was in Germany, uh, a tram line that ran from the heart of the city, which was all car-free actually, which was a pretty big deal in 1998. Um, it ran out to this kind of, I guess you could call where we were a suburb by, by these more compact, older European standards, but it was kind of like townhouses with nice little walled-in gardens, and and you got off the tram on on the the commercial street, and you were you know a three or four minute walk from the house, and the houses were a little more tightly packed, and the houses were a little smaller inside, but they still had the right number of rooms, they had the right number of spaces, everybody's comfortable. They had room for two of us to stay with them as guests, pretty very comfortably, and. And those tram systems were busy in and out of the city every day. And that's just how everyone got along or got around. And it, mm-hmm. it, it, it can work. And those, the people that live there still own cars that they can use when they want. But a lot of them don't choose to every day. So we're, I, I, I think I'm going to put you on the spot one final mm-hmm. time. Talking about all of these things. And I think we've, we've used Europe and we've used certain aspects of other places in the world as examples of success stories but rejecting bad urban design here in north america let's let's tailor our title a little sure all right putting you on the spot uh unlimited budget Mm -hmm. immediate approval Mm -hmm. no red tape complete freedom and you can do it for hamilton our city here or you can apply it to any city you can be an imagined city if you want what would you do tomorrow like as, as, as a private as a private person or or if i was magically the mayor running the municipal side of things yes yes the, all of the above oh. no i'm i just I, i'm thinking of you as a private person I, let, let, I mean you can ratchet up your power if sure. you want i'm just saying let's say you had complete... i have a crazy budget i can yeah, build yeah. i would and, and the power to do it and nobody would say no i think what i would like to do for for demonstration and experiment's sake is act as a developer, buy a piece of property. Because that, that's the one thing we haven't talked about. We talked about all these ideas, but we have to remember that the people that actually build this stuff are private companies with private interests and private money and risk. And, and oh, they yeah, know what yeah, they yeah, know yeah, and they true. don't know what they don't know, right? Like th- there's always risk with trying something new. So if I have an unlimited budget, I can take a few risks and I would buy a block of land and I would try to build an entire neighborhood within within a city, whether it be Hamilton or anywhere, any other city, um, that that doesn't look like a single family home neighborhood that does have that density, that does have some mixed use within it, uh, provides a variety of living spaces for different times of your life or different lifestyles, and and see what the demand is like. Uh, there there is a architect from who wrote some a bunch of really interesting books in the 70s through 90s named Christopher Alexander from uh, University of California Berkeley and he spent years just sitting down on park benches in various places around him and looking at what was good and what was not good that was his research he would sit down on a park bench and just look around and watch how the day unfolded for the people around him that sounds all right and I, I so so my my ideal design would be to basically take some of his literature that he's written on, and it's really interesting because it's all very short little rules or little short ideas. Hey, incorporate this into your design. 
this is why it seems to work really well. And he does it from the tiniest scale of like tiny architectural details within a single space all the way up to neighborhood scale. So I would want to build a neighborhood based on the prescriptions of his one book in particular, A Pattern Language by Christopher you Alexander. Could, you could imagine somebody sitting on a park bench in this space yeah. and going, yeah, this is a, this is right. This and, works. And I'd just like to see how, how popular it is. I, 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 there I are really people like that. that have done it. I like that you are not just thinking in terms of doing and spending and getting it done, but you're really looking at the, the education piece. You're looking at, I want people to learn from this I, I just think that's really gracious. Yeah. Gracious, that's very gracious, and that's I, and I think, I, I mean, I think in general we could use more grace in the world, don't you? Sure. But I but I really like that approach where you're not trying to solve all the problems. You're saying let's do it here and let's let people see how it works. Yeah, I really like that. I think I think we're going to end on that note, John. Thanks so much for being here. It thank has you. just been it's been fun. It really we was. Will, we're we're going to do nimbyism. I. Uh, Okay. Tease up that episode now, because uh, I think there's a lot of things we can talk about socially. Um, I mean, yeah, it's all tied together with what we've been talking about tonight and a million other things. But I think there is a barrier to, I don't want to say progress. Progress is the wrong word. Uh, there is a barrier to doing better in uh, in how we treat each other. So Watch for that episode, listeners. And thank you again, John. Thank you. Thanks again to John Brates for bringing his ideas and all of his many, many insights to Rejected Central. Thanks, John. Uh, and for bringing your substantial brain. You are really smart. Yeah, no kidding. This is a subject that led us down the online rabbit hole while we were getting ready for John's visit. So our sources are from all over the interwebs, from Wikipedia to a dozen businesses that work in urban design, as well as neighborhood organizations fighting to make our cities better. We're always looking for rejection stories that push beyond the everyday to elevate that rejection experience. So if you have a rejection story or idea for the show, reach out through rejectedcentral8 at gmail.com or social media or our podcast website at rejectedcentral.com. Thanks for listening, Rejects. See you next time.